Welcome to my so-called opera life, a podcast for opera singers by opera singers, where we work to connect, inform, empower, and inspire musicians at all levels and stages of their career. Each episode, we'll explore a piece of the never-ending puzzle of the so-called opera life, humble brags and therapeutic complaints, as well as practical information about how this business works. Each piece helping you on your journey towards success, which we believe should really mean happiness. I'm Marcel. And I'm Elise. And we're two sopranos trying to live our best so-called opera lives. Hello friends, Marcel here, and welcome to this week's episode of my so-called opera life. Since COVID hit, Elise and I have been talking a lot about our mental health and especially how quarantine, coupled with the loss of most of our singing work, is really challenging us. It's forcing us to take a look at our priorities and our values as singers, as artists, and as people. It's bringing up a lot of intense feelings, so we decided to ask a mental health professional to join us on the podcast as we explore this. We spoke with Dr. Glenn Doyle, a licensed psychologist from Chicago, and he guided us through some ways of evaluating our current emotional landscape and suggested tools for how to create new patterns to approach our goals, our careers, and our happiness. It was an eye-opening, meaningful conversation and has certainly given me a lot to think about and work towards. We hope it helps you as we all navigate the uncertainties of a COVID and post-COVID world. Now I'm all self-conscious about like like my voice because I'm here with with two trained professional singers. Now you're good. And, <laughs> and once upon a time, I know Marcel knows this. I I was gonna be I was gonna try to be a performer myself. Like like for a hot minute, I was a voice theater major before switching over to psychology. And so you guys kind of represent like part of me. You guys represent like they actually went and did it. So now I'm like okay, <clears throat> I need to I need to have a good voice. No, we're very excited. We're very excited. Thank you for coming. Yeah, of course. A lot of the content that we have been thinking of doing in season two, it feels kind of crappy now because of COVID and being stuck at home and all this uncertainty. And we've certainly dealt with our own personal struggles as well as like our relationship struggles of how we deal with this differently and how we just deal with bad shit in general differently and a lot of relationships in I think both of our lives but definitely in my life have been different or challenging because of it and we thought that that would be relevant and extremely helpful to talk about. Right which likely won't exist and so probably before we even dive into that we should say that when we were having that conversation that both of us were like we should probably have a mental health professional <laughs> on the podcast when we have this conversation um, and so we reached out to you um, and Glenn would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice just to give our listeners a sense of what you do? Well, as, as you know, Marcel, I'm always really reluctant to talk about myself or to self-promote <laughs> in any way. So I'll, I'll see if I, can, if I can manage. My name is Dr. Glenn Doyle. I am a licensed psychologist. Um, and I have, a, I, I have a, a practice where I do therapy and consultation in groups. And I have one office that is in Chicago, which is where most of my work happens. And then I have an office in Washington, D.C. And the, the commute is, is just a bear. Let me tell you, like when, I'm, that, that, that's a joke. I don't actually commute. 
<laughs> um, most of my work um, revolves around folks who have experienced trauma. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of started out working with, with veterans, but now I work with a lot of abuse survivors and people who grew up with, with, a, lot of, uh, with a lot of trauma and abuse. And then increasingly, a lot of my work is uh, uh, doing kind of writing and speaking and, and these kinds of things. Uh, if you uh, are familiar with the internet, with the Facebooks, <laughs> the Dr. Glenn Doyle online community there on Facebook, you know, has come up on, you know, 56,000 folks and every single day, you know, I, I, I write about things and, and we as a community have kind of conversations about things like I'm really, really passionate about not just mental health and, and, and wellness, but I'm really, really into this idea that, you know, man, in order to be mentally healthy, you don't necessarily have to be going in, you know, to the, lots of people can't access like all the therapy they need. And so I'm really into self-help and I'm really, really into making resources available to folks who might not otherwise have access to a mental health professional. So that's why I do like the community, the, the Dr. Glenn Doyle page and I've gotten into writing and speaking, these kinds of things. So that's cool. amazing. I mean, I think the self-help is really useful for our audience in particular, because a lot of us are don't have access to a therapist or therapy of any kind, really, just because we're without health insurance and, you know, finances are tight and things. Some of us maybe view our work as a kind of therapy for ourselves and certainly for our for myself, even just like the last few weeks have been really difficult when suddenly like the thing that brings you a lot of joy and ends up being like a huge coping mechanism for you is just suddenly taken away. And I think we are not alone in (laughs) dealing with that struggle. I guess like, what is your take on that? And what kinds of things do you think we could do to help ourselves through that? Well, something that I see a lot of these days is that, uh, you know, what's happening out there right now with the, the virus and the lockdowns and these massive interruptions in, in people's life routines. Um, we're seeing a lot of people confronted with uh, some, some really basic questions such as kind of who am I and what am I all about? Um, because a lot of people kind of fall into this thing of defining themselves primarily by what they do and, and not necessarily what they do for a living, just what they do day to day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it's easy to do that because, and this is going to sound either simplistic or circular or whatever, but, you know, what we do takes up most of our time and most of our energy and whatnot. Right now you're saying, of course, by definition, what we do takes up our time. I know that. But the point, the idea is that, you know, very few of us have devoted a great deal of thought to, okay, you know, like, who is Glenn other than a guy who goes in and does therapy or a guy who writes things on the internet or, or whatnot? Like, if the internet exploded tomorrow, and then we would really be screwed, guys, because the internet is the only <laughs> thing keeping us sane. That's the whole thing. But the internet is- Simultaneously driving us crazy. Yeah, yes. right? <laughs> Are you kidding? Nothing but the healthiest interactions happen on the internet. <laughs> Didn't you know that? We are our kindest versions of ourselves in Facebook comment threads. <laughs> we are. Consistently. I, of course, never fall into that definition. But uh, <laughs> but the thing is that, uh, that again, like, like, you know, what we do, the patterns, like, so in, in my 
mode of, of treatment. Like I talk a lot about patterns, but you know, like, like we're tempted to think that we are our patterns. We are our patterns of what we do, what we think, what we feel. Um, you see some people, you know, at least you were mentioning relationships. You see some people who really fall into this thing. It's like, I am the type of relationship patterns that I have. Like we all know people who kind of think of themselves as mostly failures because they've struggled to maintain consistent relationships. You know, like I, I, I did this, uh, this podcast that was basically a, a dating skills podcast. It was kind of like a dude's had to pick up chicks kind of podcast. And they, add, they had me on and, and I suddenly started talking about things like self-esteem and, you know, constructive interpersonal relating and the, and the hosts are kind of looking at me like, I thought you were going to tell us how to pick up chicks. Like, what does this have to do? <laughs> But the point being that, um, again, a subset of my business comes from guys who, who, you know, their self-esteem is just terrible. And we ask why, because they've consistently been rejected and they, they can't, you know, like the short versions, you know, they, they can't find a romantic partner, et cetera. But we all know people who have defined themselves by these external, by these patterns. Um, and it begs the question of, okay, what happens when those patterns get scrambled what happens when those patterns aren't there to define us but the inevitable answer that we have to come back to is the fact that look if a pattern can falter then by then then it can't define us like we have to be more than our pattern like anything that can be taken away doesn't define you and this really confuses a lot of people like this really can like example uh, for example you know in dc like i work with a lot of people who have pretty lofty job titles and pretty, you know, pretty inflated bank accounts. And it's confusing as hell to them when something happens and for whatever reason, they get fired, they lose their job, they, they, they you know, they, they go broke. Well, who am I without this? Like in DC, the particular job title is really important. Who am I without this job title? But the good news is, like this has always been the case. It's always been the case that we are more than and other than our patterns. We are more than and other than our possessions. We are more than other than our titles, whatever. And that's always been the case. But every now and then we are handed the gift of a crisis that will remind us of this, you know? Well, that's a good question. And you have this gift now of being able to realize that or create that. Because the fact of the matter is, we can be who and what we want to be. These things, these patterns that seem to define us oftentimes stand in the way of that. They oftentimes limit us. Like, so for example, a lot of like, like I remember um, <laughs> during my brief period in, in the performing arts when I was like auditioning for things and, and you know, I mean, community theater type things, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be really kind of interesting because you saw all these people who had other gigs, right? You know, they had a day job and, and, and whatever. And, I, and at the time I was in yeah. school, so you know, like these people I knew from school, et cetera, et cetera. But for a hot minute, they were defining themselves in terms of aspiring performer. For a hot minute when they're on the stage, they were defining themselves as, dude, I am the star. One of my uh, standout moments as in, in my performing arts career where I got like a, a, a lead role in, in a, a dinner theater production there in the thriving performance uh, mecca of Des Moines, Iowa. I tell you, when you've made the dinner theater circuit in Des Moines, you've made it. But I got this role and I was really excited about it. 
it was like a lead role and I was getting paid for it. You know, what a concept. People would ask me, like people who had gone to school with in the performing arts program, like, like they would ask, oh, really, what show is it? And it was this obscure, no one has heard of it. Like this, this, this random thing that was based on this other thing. So it wasn't even like an original work. And like, oh, but you have the lead, right? And I'm like, the point being that even though in the grand scheme of things, that show had very little to do with who I am as an individual or what my goals are, what my values are, for a hot minute, I could define myself as somebody who was good enough to get a lead role. The point is we can create all this stuff. It, it, it's something that happens in our heads. You know, like, like we think that there is some magic meaning um, that, that happens when we become a father or a husband or, or, or whatnot. Fact is, all that happens in our heads. And right now, we're all getting woken up to this, this idea that, you know, man, we can actually create or define, figure out who we are. We might not need the help of the job or the, the role in the show or, or whatnot. For a lot of people, it's an intimidating thing, though. Because some of you are looking at it like, oh, dude, I've never had to think about who I am. Who's, who am I? Yeah. Do you have any suggestions? Like, personally, I'm not sure if I really know how to figure that out myself. And I mean, with being an opera singer, I think we first of all define ourselves as being singers so much because we want it so much. And we've chosen this challenging career. And then simultaneously... We can't not define ourselves as singers. And then simultaneously, we feel like a fraud for even defining ourselves as singers because we have a day job and we can't make ends meet with our voice and like we're not getting hired. So like on one end, we can't stop saying we're singers. and On the other, we're too even afraid to say that we are. There's this concept that I'm sure you guys are completely unfamiliar with called imposter syndrome. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> Never comes up. In fact, I know you guys have talked about it on, on, on your show even. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's my observation that, you know, we are very, very responsive to um, conditioning. Like we're very, very responsive to these ideas, these, these kind of set in stone beliefs that we have. And it feels like we've always had them. One of the reasons why certain beliefs, we actually in psychology, we call them schemas because they're kind of like a series of interlocking beliefs that are really kind of set there and they feel like the basics of who we are. One of the reasons why they feel right is just because we can't really remember coming by them. They've just always kind of been there. And among the most basic of these schemas that tend to feel right to us are these schemas about what makes life worthwhile, what makes people worthwhile. Um, from these schemas come our rules about, you know, when am I allowed to feel good? And when am I allowed to feel productive? And when am I allowed to feel like a, like a worthwhile person? So coming back to the question of like, all right, so how do we handle that feeling of being an imposter? How do we handle that feeling of like, you know, kind of that stuck between a rock and a hard place of, I feel like a fraud when I say I'm a singer, but I kind of, I mean, it doesn't feel right to not say I'm a singer, et cetera, et cetera. We first have to ask ourselves, okay, what accounts for that imposter syndrome? And usually what we find is that, all right, what's happening is I'm somehow violating my own belief schemas, rules about what I think should make for a productive life, like a worthwhile life. So for example, many of us grow up with this idea that in order to have worth, we must contribute to the lives of others. 
really good belief. I personally have that belief. I think it's really good to contribute to, to the lives of others. The point is not that it's a bad thing to, to think or to believe. The point is that many of us grow up thinking that um, if we're unable to contribute to the lives of others, then we are not worthy as people. Right? So that puts us in a hell of a spot when for whatever reason, we're just not able to, like, like we're down on our own luck or we're broke or we're in pain or, or whatnot and we can't be there for other people. Well, you're not doing the thing. When you find yourself in a position where you can't do that for a long time, it messes with you. Right. The point being that take a look at what created that. What created that was the schema. Like it was the belief that you held for a long, long time that had been conditioned. Coming over here to the singer thing, what we're, pro what we're probably dealing with often, I can't say it's the case of everybody, but often what we're probably dealing with is this idea that, okay, A, you need to figure out your thing. You need to figure out what you're going to, like who you are, what you're going to be, because who you are is going to be defined by what you do, right? You got to figure out your thing, and then you have to become great at it. You have to be the biggest thing in the world. You have to be successful, right? Then when we're not successful with our thing, maybe we've chosen the wrong thing. I had that happen. <laughs> you know, a lot of us have had that, have had that happen. Mm -hmm. When we're not successful with our thing, then we result in, then we kind of fall into that, that trap that you're talking about, Lisa, where you're like, okay, look, I was, for, for years I've said this is my thing. I can't just switch things. <laughs> As it turns out, you can, but we get into that later. But... <laughs> You know, I've, I've screwed up my thing. So that either me, I mean, was it the wrong thing? Right. Or am I just crap? Then on the other hand, you're like, well, I can't really turn things around right now. Like everybody knows this is my thing. Everybody knows I went to school for music, right? This is especially, I don't know if you got notice. I mean, this is especially um, pernicious when you grow up and you show some talent and everybody tells you, hey, you're going to be the thing, Right. 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 Yeah. I'm sure there are definitely people listening to this who are like, you know, they grew up and they were the prospective performer in their families and whatnot. And they get out there and realize, oh boy, this is not going to be exactly a linear journey. <laughs> and they're not quite sure what to tell everybody back home. Right. So they further internalize that, that thing of like, oh man, really, I must have blown it because my rule says I'm only allowed to feel happy and content when I'm consistent with this belief that got to find your thing. You got to be great at your thing. Now, how do we get around that? It yeah, usually takes, I know. <laughs> it usually, get to the point. Tell us. I was no, no joke. I, I was doing a podcast not long ago and it was about cognitive therapy. And, um, you know, for everybody who, uh, who might not know what cognitive therapy is, I know we're, we're broadcasting to a lot of performing arts people, none of whom have ever been in therapy. <laughs> Wink, wink, right? Come on, I was a theater kid. I know a lot of us wind up in therapy. Yeah. A lot of us probably know what cognitive therapy is, but if anybody doesn't happen to, it's this idea that when we're depressed or when we're anxious or whatever, it's often because the patterns of our thinking have become prone to what's called distortion. So for example, instead of going around thinking that, oh man, this thing sucked, but it's not the end of the world, which is the case with most things, we think, oh man, this thing sucks and it's my fault and the world is going to end and it's going to be like this forever. Distorted thinking, you know, it leads to a place of great anxiety and great depression. So I was on this podcast explaining this thing about cognitive therapy. I'm like, all right, so in a nutshell, tell us what we can do to get undepressed. And I'm like, well, 
first you have to understand how thoughts can create depression, like trying to explain the distorted thoughts. No, 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 just tell me, just tell me. And he will not let it go. And so finally I'm like, you know what, here you go. And I don't know if, if people are listening to this, they don't have the, the, the video version, but I went like this, like the I Dream of Genie, boop. Because <laughs> I have suspicions of your method. So how can we get around this? One of the big things that we really have to do is ask ourselves good questions about like, you know, look, what are the, in order to wind up where I am right now, emotionally, um, even physically, what kinds of things would I have had to have believed to wind up right here? Like, I know I'm upset because I'm not getting a lot of auditions, or even if I am getting a lot of auditions, I know I'm not getting a lot of parts. How did I get here, right? Usually when you start that kind of digging, and it's not psychoanalysis, you don't have to go back to childhood and, you know, and, and talk like, you know, like lie on the couch and talk about your mom for 10 years and about how that dream with the frying pan and the egg and the boat. Right. No, I'm just talking about stuff like, you know, look, logically, mm-hmm. in order to wind up where you are emotionally, like what would you have had to believe to have gotten here? Mm. Well, I would have probably have had to believe that I need to register for as many auditions as possible if I was really committed to this opera thing, right? That's a belief. If I'm really committed to this, I have to chase it down. Like I have to, we've all heard these people saying you have to have the passion for it and you have to chase down everything you're being, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, right. that's, that's a recipe for a really balanced, pleasurable life. Right. But that might be a belief. Like, okay, I, I believe I should do everything. And I believe that if I do everything, then I will be rewarded somehow, right? Like, like if I put in the good faith effort. Now, neither of those is true, mm. but it's the kind of thing that if you ask good questions, you can realize, oh man, that's what was going on with me. And as you kind of start uncovering the ways in which you've been, can I say bad words on this podcast? Yes. The ways you've been fucking cruel to yourself. Because yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can probably understand this, that we are fucking brutal with ourselves, especially if we're in the kind of uh, profession or hobby or whatever that invites competition. Right. Because we get this idea in our head of tough love and we think that tough love means just being merciless with ourselves. Mm. And so we wind up after decades of having had these really strict rules about how when we're allowed to feel like we've made a good effort, when we're allowed to feel content, when we're allowed to feel happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't even know that we've been so fucking cruel to ourselves forever. Right. So first things first, you kind of have to do some excavation work. Say, all right, in what ways have I been thinking in really black and white terms? In what ways have I been really thinking in what we call personalized terms where everything is your fault? Like it's not the case that the director had a bad day. Yeah. It's not the case that maybe the director just has a problem with, 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 you know, in my time, it was like redheaded dudes. We personalize it, right? Yeah. They hated me. It was me. Right. You start doing some archaeology work and kind of figuring out in what ways have I been cruel, unfair, brutal with myself? And, and, and let me assure you, at first, it's not even going to feel like that. At first, it's going to feel like, oh, I was just being tough love because I can take it because I'm tough. It's the irony of theater kids like you guys and like me. You bet we're tough but we're also some of the most sensitive bitches you'll ever find. (laughs) It's this weird dichotomy, right? Right. So then after you've kind of done some excavation work, some really honest appraisal, like, look, where have my beliefs 
really been not serving me well, then you have to do the hardest thing. And that you have to begin to extend some compassion toward yourself. And so many people, I guarantee, are listening to this podcast right now going, uh, self-compassion. <laughs> oh, what's, what's he going to say next? That is, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and people like me. Because <laughs> that's what we think of when we think of self-compassion. All self-compassion means is acknowledging our suffering. That's what compassion means, actually. It means to suffer with, right? You guys are opera guys, and you know that. You know, com compassion, to, to share the passion of, means to acknowledge your own pain. Mm -hmm. And we have to be fair with ourselves. And a lot of times, owing to our old schemas and shoulds and beliefs and rules, we haven't been compassionate and fair with ourselves. Now, how in a practical sense does this work out in the real world? Usually what I have my folks do is pay a lot of attention to how they're talking to themselves. Like, so I actually have them keep track of like, all right, at certain points during the day, I want you to push the pause button and, and, and literally write out what's going through your head right now. Like behave as if you're in the comics and right. there's like a thought bubble. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And literally tell me what's going through your head right now. And I assign them like random times to do it. And usually what happens then is they'll come back and like, oh yeah, I happen to notice that I was saying this shitty thing and this brutal thing and this unfair thing to myself at this time and this place. And they get in the habit of constructing compassionate, fair, what are called rational responses. Right. I have folks write their rational responses down mm -hmm. on index cards and keep them handy, right? And they have an assignment to go through them X many times during the day. Guys, what we're talking about here is programming. We're talking about programming and conditioning. We're talking about a, a group of people, performers, who have generally spent decades uh, programming and conditioning themselves to believe that, that they suck, which, which is ironic because, like I, like I know you guys have probably thought about this a lot, in order to be a performer, on the one hand, like you get smacked around with humility all the time because you see a bunch of other performers out there and everybody's awesome, right. you know, and you're, and you're competing against them on auditions, et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, you're very aware of humility. On the other hand, it's a pretty narcissistic thing to like get up in front of people and say, hey, I want you to give me the role where thousands of people are going to look at me, only me, yeah. right? And I don't mean narcissistic in the sense of like right. personality. Right, right, right. But it's the like point, a deep conviction that you have something to say that absolutely. people should pay attention to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the, 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 the shorter answer to this longer thing that I'm, that I'm, that I'm unpacking at, at the rate of one thing an hour um, <laughs> is that what do we do about it? We become really, really aware of the patterns in our thinking, the patterns in our talking to ourselves, and we become very willing to proactively talk back to it and recondition ourselves. You know, to get mm -hmm. a new internal dialogue going. Right. right, right. My therapist said something to me along those lines that was like, it just changed my worldview in that she was just like, she was listening to me talk about work and how I feel about my bad days at work. And she's just like, do you, would you, do you talk to other people? Right. The way you're talking about yourself right, right now, right. you know? And so like all of a sudden, just in my own life, it was like, I would procrastinate about practicing, even though I love singing, yeah. I would procrastinate about practicing because I had put myself into a pattern of when I would practice, if something went wrong, 
-hmm. That meant that I sucked. Oh, my high C is not working today. I'm a fake soprano. How can I call (laughs) myself a singer? Like I'm the worst. And so then I would procrastinate because I would just make myself more upset and more anxious by practicing Absolutely. until that switch happened. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, oh, your high C is not working today. Hmm. Have you been drinking enough water? Is it your period right now? You know, did you get enough sleep last night? You know, you didn't. So, or maybe we're human, and sometimes our high seas don't work, right? Yeah. So you're you're really speaking to something that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, I really feel that psychology, mental health, generally has has done a pretty lousy job, and certainly in the popular culture, of um, informing people, kind of educating people about what it takes to kind of manage our thinking and manage our feelings we've been sold this bill of goods that we are this complex mechanism, you know, and even going back to Freud, right. You know, there are different parts of the personality and they can only be understood by deep, deep analysis. Right. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, and and again, this is kind of where my passion for self-help comes in because I actually don't think this is as complicated as, as many people like, and, and mind you, I have a vested interest in you believing otherwise. Like it's to my advantage if you think this is a super complicated thing that you can only learn by paying me two hundred dollars an hour for. So remember that, guys. <laughs> I don't think it's that complicated. We gravitate toward experiences that we find reinforcing or pleasurable. We gravitate away from experiences that we find punishing or painful. On any level it can always be reduced to that. Like even the behavior of some people who they're called masochistic, right? Or, and and they, they gravitate toward what are seemingly painful experiences. Some people have described, uh, I don't know, opera singers as perhaps a masochistic species. I <laughs> don't know if you guys would agree with that, but um, <laughs> the point is that Again, if, if, in, in neuro-linguistic programming, they talk about it as moving toward values and moving away values. We can evaluate any behavior of ours in terms of, is it a moving toward value or a moving away value? Even masochists are getting something out of their pain. It becomes a net positive for them. It becomes a net pleasurable experience for them, right? So there is nobody who's this exception to the rule. If we gravitate toward, we move toward pleasurable reinforcing experiences, we move away from painful experiences. Now, when you're talking about practice and you're talking about, okay, there was a day when practice equaled pain for me because my high seas were not working. I was flooded with all these negative thoughts that resulted in these negative feelings that resulted in these behaviors of quitting practice, et cetera. We see really closely how all these are closely interlinked, right? Mm -hmm. So you had an experience when practice equaled pain. And then what is procrastination? This is we're putting off the pain of something. We find something unrewarding, something painful. We don't do it. It works the same way with taxes. <laughs> now, if we don't have experiences that interrupt those associations, we will always associate that pain and that pleasure with certain things. So Marcel, what happened with like you getting back into practice or what happens when somebody finally decides to do their taxes? suddenly the experience of not doing it becomes more painful than the experience of doing it. Because if we continue to put out the tax, like tax might be painful, but if we don't do it, whoo, that's going to invite a lot of pain, right? Mm -hmm. For a singer who is avoiding practice because they've associated with the pain, the pain of uncertainty, the pain of those thoughts, the pain of not hitting the high seas. In order for that person, for that performer to get back into it, they have to change the meanings they associate with not hitting one's high C's. 
or the meanings of any kind of challenge within the practice session. When you shift the meaning from, hmm, either I suck or I haven't practiced enough or maybe I'm just not naturally gifted enough or like whatever it is, change the meaning to, oh, it is great that I had this challenge in practice today because that means I won't have a challenge you know, when I go in for the actual performance. Oh, this is great that I found this out. Now I can work on it. Oh, this is great that I'm using my practice time well. We have to shift meanings. The same goes for, uh, you know, we were talking, uh, uh, Marcel, you and I were talking like a while ago about audition, like nervousness and, and, and like how do we change our experience of going in for an audition? Because there's a subset of singers who get into this whole thing and like, oh man, another opportunity for rejection. <laughs> another opportunity to sing for somebody who won't remember my name. That's the meaning that they're associating with auditions. And of course, they're going to drag their feet. They will probably not perform particularly well if that's the meaning that they're attaching to, to auditions. We sit down with that same person and I call it kind of rewiring. We rewire the meaning circuits. Like, you know, instead of that meaning a bunch of pain and giving you the opportunity to feel untalented and, and, and uncommitted, et cetera, et cetera. What if we rewired that to going in for an audition means I am proactively managing my career. Like the point isn't even whether I get the part. The point is that I went in for this audition and that's me taking a step. Maybe the meaning is, oh, even if I don't get the part, like getting the part would be gravy, that'd be great. But my meaning for being here is I'm learning something about the audition process. Maybe I'm learning, okay, this company, who all is present for the audition, right? I can watch their faces. I can maybe make some distinctions and create some new understandings about how this whole process works. Maybe I meet some people in the hall who I network with, right? That's the meaning that you can associate with auditions that takes it from this painful thing of nervousness and rejection, et cetera, et cetera, to, wow, it's this really positive thing. And then if they get the part, ooh, gravy. Changing the meanings that we associate with it. Like this goes for uh, 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 trauma as well. You know, like, like the real shift happens for people. And I don't want to make like super generalizations, but for many people, the shift happens when their trauma goes from meaning a particular thing like this means that the world is cruel and unpredictable and I am very vulnerable and, and whatnot to shifting the meaning to, okay, this is something I was really, really lucky to survive. This is something that I can use to help other people never experience this. Like it goes from a meaning of pain to a meaning of, of, of passion and power. Behind the Curtain with the Opera Dolls. I'm Jenny. I'm Anna. And I'm Christina. And we're three New York City opera singers that created plush opera singing dolls in order to make opera tangible, relevant, and accessible to all, especially kids. We love opera, you love opera, but why don't our kids? Play some for them, people. We know these plots aren't always kid-friendly, our little mezzo Carmen, quote-unquote, the traveler, and all the sopranos that die in the end. Whoops. But let's be real. This art form is super important and has inspired music and society throughout history. Check us out on theoperadolls.com or follow us at theoperadolls on Instagram. 
Hey everyone, it's Christina, one of the co-founders of the Opera Dolls. So you've probably been wondering how these cute and cuddly opera dolls portray opera to young kids, considering opera has some pretty adult themes. Well, for starters, we don't tell kids that Carmen gets stabbed at the end of the opera by her former lover, Don Jose, and we don't tell kids that she works in a cigarette factory. This is what we do tell kids. Hello, opera fan. I'm Carmen, a strong woman who lives in Seville, Spain. I travel and go on adventures with my friends Frasquita, Mercedes, Dan Cairo, and Remendado. George Bizet wrote an opera about me called Carmen. In my aria, Abanera, I sing about how fickle love can be. And that's it. That's all we tell kids, so it's very kid-friendly. So that way, if your kid has one of our opera dolls, they won't be traumatized and have nightmares about Don Jose stalking Carmen outside of the bullfighting ring, and they won't rush to try cigarettes anytime soon. You have a solid 15 years before that begins. Instead, they get to learn about a fun character, hear beautiful music from over 100 years ago, and they experience those mushy feelings feelings you feel when you hear opera. Not a bad way to spend an afternoon. That's all for now. Back to my so-called Opera Life podcast. So I'm not, I'm not extremely negative towards myself. I mean, at least like surfacely, (laughs) superficially, I don't like talk negative necessarily about my practice or like anything. I think I like sort of sometimes give myself a pass um, and I'm maybe afraid to like explore feelings or like, mm. I don't know, try, I mean, not that I'm not trying, but like, I'm almost like very forgiving and, um, of myself. <laughs> How dare you be very forgiving of yourself? But like, oh, not in a way that's necessarily, you know, good, but I, yeah. I focus a lot of my, my thoughts and my like anxiety on like, what needs to be done sure. and what I need to do. And, um, just like, I know, I understand like the, the, the audition doesn't define me and the rejection doesn't define me, but, but I have to go to the next audition and like, you know, and yeah, we yeah. do get told so much in our, in, in, in every, you know, career I feel, but especially as opera singers, like just keep trying, just keep doing it, just keep doing different things and you'll, you'll get it and like you just hold on to that belief and and that's where I for me some of the issues I've been experiencing as I've got developed my own career and made this life for myself that isn't still isn't really where I want it to be Mm -hmm. but I'm like at a point now where I don't know I just I can't I can't stop like all these things I built up and keep going and like grit and and I and I have trouble like now I'm at a point where it's great things have gotten very busy and I have to make decisions that of things I thought I wanted mm-hmm. and now maybe I don't right. but I don't really know <laughs> so, so a couple things occur to me one I, I really enjoyed how when 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 you began speaking you're like I don't really put a lot, like I find it really hard to, uh, to, to talk about long pause feelings, <laughs> <laughs> having trouble saying I the do. word <laughs> might have some trouble. 
But the other thing that leaps out at me, at least, is, is so as, as you were describing that, and you were describing, okay, look, I have built up kind of all these routines and kind of all these patterns, because that's really what we're talking about. Like when you talk about, I have to go on to the next thing, that's your routine, that's your pattern. That's kind of exactly what we're talking about, these things that have been interrupted by, by the virus, right? But you said something really interesting. Like you said, and at this point, I can't stop. And then you just kind of went on as if that was a given, right? Because it's my observation that, of course you could stop. Of course, of course you could. We could essentially all of us stop whatever we're doing. Now, a lot of us would experience consequences to that that we wouldn't necessarily like. Mm -hmm. And we think that the way to never experience those consequences is to make it a rule that you can't stop. But you also see the problem that we fall into with that is because, okay, we've then defined ourselves by this, this, this fake thing. And I say it's fake because it's in our head. You know, that rule is in your head. Most of our shoulds are in our heads. And in fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Albert Ellis, who came up with a type of therapy called rational emotive therapy, which was basically just an excuse for him to swear at patients. <laughs> it really was. If, if you Google anybody who's listening, Google Dr. Albert Ellis, and, and you'll, you'll find that he was famous for it. Like, like he'd get a patient talking, and they would say something that was like an irrational belief or something. He'd interrupt them, horse shit! <sighs> <laughs> But the reason he would do that is what I was just saying a moment ago about patterns. You have a pattern that you run in your head and patterns run the same way until they are interrupted. Just like uh, you know, a, a record. The record plays the same way every time because there are grooves in the record and it's gonna play the same way until the grooves somehow get, like, get scratched, right? So at least you have that pattern of thinking and believing that, that, okay, I have to keep doing this. I have to follow through on this. The question is begged, if I didn't do that, then what? And most, for most people, the answer is some version of, I wouldn't know who I am. I wouldn't know what to do. And that scares them to death. Mm. But, I put, but I put it to you. At least, like, so when you say, okay, well, I can't stop doing it. Like, that, it may not be who I am anymore, but I really don't feel like I can stop right now. Like, I put it to you, like, okay, what would happen if you stopped? I guess I would just take a big like, breath. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess I would just feel like a lot of work was wasted, Ooh, a lot of time. That's a powerful belief, yeah. <laughs> It is, because yeah. that's a belief that a lot of people have. You shouldn't waste work. Yeah. It becomes a thing that uh, philosophers call the sunk cost fallacy, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it also um, cuddles up to a thing that psychologists talk about a lot called cognitive dissonance. What cognitive dissonance is, is the, the contrast, the dissonance between who we believe ourselves to be and what we do right? Or what we're supposed to be and what we actually do. When we've put, like, as Elise was talking about, when you've put a lifetime of effort towards something and then you have the nasty little thought, oh, maybe I have been barking up the wrong tree. Yikes. A bunch of beliefs kick in, beliefs to the tune of, well, if you switch things up now, you've been wasting your time, 
And we can't stand that dissonance. Like we can't stand, oh man, I'm not someone who wastes time. You've been wasting effort. You've been wasting money. You've been wasting other people's attention. <laughs> I want you to remember that that's all BS. And when I say BS, we know what BS means. BS actually means belief systems. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A belief is like a tabletop. So if we have this belief, for example, if I have this belief that I am awesome, which I do, <laughs> a tabletop can't just float out there in space. It needs legs, right? And so under the tabletop of I am awesome, I put legs of experiences that reinforce my belief that I am awesome. Now, usually they're very selective experiences, right? If I want to support the belief that I'm awesome, I'm probably not going to focus on those experiences that have me being less than competent, less than charming, rambling on for yeah. 10 hours on a podcast. <laughs> Whatever it is. I'm going to focus on the legs that support my own belief and my own awesomeness, right? right. This is how narcissists, like, and, and before I was joking when I was saying performers are narcissists, but this is how real life narcissists create how they view the world is because they are incapable of seeing anything other than legs that support the I am awesome tabletop. When you have a belief system in your life that I should be whatever, I should, like I was just working early today with somebody, with, with a, a young woman who's really struggling with the belief, I should want to be a mom. Mm. Keep in mind that all belief systems are BS. They're just belief systems. And if you mm. look beneath the tabletop, you can see the legs, the experiential legs that are holding up that belief. And oftentimes you'll see that, boy, some of those legs are pretty rickety. For example, if you have the belief, I'm taking an example from my own life. My father was a brilliant charismatic guy. Like, like, like he was, he owned every room he was ever in and he was this business leader and, and founded companies. Just brilliant, brilliant guy. And he wanted me to have a brilliant career. He really wanted me to be a big deal. And so I got it in my head as a kid that the way to live up to dad's expectations was I was going to be elected president. In fact, I made up my mind, guys, that I was going to be elected president in the year 2020. <laughs> wow. Now I'm looking at the situation, guys, and I'm thinking, boy, I think I might put it off. <laughs> Oh, any part of this death plague murder hornet. I was going to say, I think you dodged a bullet. <laughs> the point is, but think about that. Think about yeah. the psychology of a kid who thought that the only way he could live up to dad's expectations is to be elected leader of the free world. Now, that was a tabletop belief I had. What were the legs that were supporting that belief? Well, I had the leg that, boy, dad sure seems happy when I win like debate tournaments and stuff, right? And I, here's another leg that dad sure, you know, dad talks about, you know, he had the great man theory of history. I thought how history is comprised of these great men who are at the right place at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. Boy, he sure loves Winston Churchill. He would probably really love me if I did that. Right? But the most important leg was if I choose to do something other than political leadership with my life, I am letting dad down and he will not love me. Mm. Now, as you look at the legs under that tabletop, some of those are pretty rickety. And if I get into a good therapy relationship and I'm able to really loosen that leg of the only way dad loves me is if I become Winston Churchill, I can probably knock that leg out and the whole table starts to become wobbly. In much the same way, when we have beliefs to the tune of 
my family will be mad at me if I don't, dot, dot, dot. Or my friends will think I'm a loser if I don't, dot, dot, dot. Or I would be letting down grandma, who loved to hear me sing and said I should sing at the Met someday if I don't, dot, dot, dot. All of those are legs that are underneath this tabletop of I have to be a singer, let alone a successful singer. Some of those are not terribly steady legs. I guarantee you that even if by definition we say, okay, maybe it was a waste of time to have a music degree, you've got things other than your music degree in your four years. <laughs> there are definitely ways to go in and loosen the legs on some of those beliefs. And so the tabletop comes down and then in its place, this is the big mistake a lot of people make. A lot of people think they're just gonna get rid of an old belief. Guess what? Nature abhors a vacuum. You need to have decided what belief goes in its place. And this is another thing I could come back to it too. I really believe that I have to follow through on these things or else I'm gonna feel adrift. I'm gonna feel lost. I'm gonna feel like a failure. I'm gonna feel like a waste of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What belief is gonna go in there instead? Maybe it can be a belief that, like I said a few moments ago, is a little more compassionate. Maybe I have worth whatever I decide to do. Now, a lot of us hear that and they think, okay, that's the kind of thing Dr. Doyle says, just to make me feel better, he must think I'm a loser. But I'm here to tell you, I'm inside Dr. Doyle's skin and I can affirm that Dr. Doyle finds you to have worth. All of which is to say, it's a process of deconditioning and reconditioning. Keep in mind that you didn't arrive at these beliefs overnight. It took a minute. And so it's gonna take a minute to keep chipping away at them. And that's another thing that you have to have compassion with yourself for. I love these people who think they're gonna come in and they're gonna do a couple of sessions of therapy and they're gonna be good. And they think, by the way, if they're not good after a couple of sessions, either they have failed or I have failed. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like any relationship with any other person, your relationship with yourself is work and you have to keep showing up for that work. Big time. Just like a relationship with your instrument, right? With your voice. Yeah, particularly um, Elise, like when you say, boy, you know, I have to stick with it right now. People are allowed to change. Relationships evolve, right? Like I, 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 I challenge you to find you know, anybody who in the history of their relationship be with a significant other or with a career or with an idea or with a religion. <laughs> a relationship that has not evolved and changed. Like I can attest this, like right now, my faith is a really important part of my life. But I can tell you, like I'm 43, it was not always at least in the way that it is now, right? Relationships evolve and change just like we evolve and change. You know, it's okay to be human. I guess it seems like what we can do, or like because we don't have control over anything. <laughs> <gasps> she said it. Marcel, Holly says really we don't sucks. have control. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. So check this out. I, I talk about this a lot over on the Dr. Glenn Doyle page on, on Facebook that everybody should go find if you're listening to this. Um, this idea of control. So this is particularly true with trauma, like with PTSD. Because one of the things that, that most defines trauma or uh, post-traumatic disorders is what we call intrusive experiences. Like people are having flashbacks or, or 
self-harm impulses or whatever, and they come and they kind of take over the brain for a minute. Like anybody who's experienced a flashback knows, like it is an immersive experience, right? And the questions that a lot of people come into therapy with are like, look, whatever else happens in therapy, I need to figure out how to not have those immersive intrusive symptoms. Because if like, if nothing else gets fixed, I need that fixed. And I tell people, look, I will give you the set of tools that will, and I give you, I will help you develop the set of tools that gives you the best possible odds of, of not having that happen. And they'll kind of look at me like, uh, no, I, I don't want to increase my odds. I want a guarantee that that will not happen again. And I say, look, you're asking me to give me, you, someone, external control of a central nervous system that is not mine to control and not really yours to control. And he says, in that case, screw it. If I can't <laughs> control this. And I've literally, like, like we're joking. I've, I've literally had that conversation with, with a prospective with a prospective patient. He said, well, you know, look, if I can't control this, then I don't even want to try it. Well, my, my observation is this, that look, the fact that we can't control a great many things and the jury, you know, they, like reasonable people can disagree about what we do and don't control. But I, again and again, come up against the swallow of hopelessness when we realize, like, okay, I don't really have control over that. A subset of people, like, like when I did the How to Pick Up Chicks uh, podcast a couple of years ago, and, and I got some, some people looking for, for like counsel, like dating coaching, basically. And they would say, you know, look, I, 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 I want the, what you can say to girls to get them to like you, you know, cause, cause they had heard there were magic things that you could say. Right. Not true. <laughs> Emma girl can confirm. <laughs> oh, you think? <laughs> there aren't magic things that you can say to somebody, but are there things that you can say that might increase your chances that they would be interested in and receptive to you? Of course there are. Does that usually boil down to these specific magic things? Well, probably not. It usually boils down to a mindset and an understanding of kind of how interactions and relationships work, et cetera, et cetera. That is to say, people generally don't like uh, conversations where you talk about yourself all the time. You know, people like being asked questions about themselves, let alone honest interest in them and their life and their career, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a perfect example of, look, I can't control whether somebody else responds favorably to me romantically. If only I could, man, like, like that, I wouldn't treat the trauma people anymore. I would just write the secret of that down. <laughs> Guys, I figured it out. Here's how to, but you can't, you can't control how somebody responds to you romantically, sexually, even in terms of, of liking. Yeah. Right? right. Or an audition. Or an audition. You can't control that. Does that mean that you shouldn't do the things that you can do? Well, no. You should do the things that you can control. What can I control? I can control how I approach the interaction. I can control the authenticity that I bring to the, to the interaction. Like, am I going into that interaction just looking to pick someone up? Or am I going into that interaction honestly hoping to have a, a good, fun, interesting, lighthearted conversation? But look at what we're talking about. What we're talking about, again, comes to how we're interpreting the meaning of certain things. What is the meaning of approaching somebody you know, to hit on slash interact with them, right? What is the meaning of that? Is the meaning of that, I'm going to go in to specifically control what they think and what they do so I can you know, get laid? 
or am I going to approach it with the meaning of, look, I'm a human, they're a human, we're gonna have a human interaction here that is gonna be based on authenticity and spontaneity, et cetera, et cetera. We're back to once again talking about meanings. We're also back to once again talking about moving toward and moving away things. Because somebody is going to avoid, like I deal with this all the time, and somebody's going to avoid approaching somebody they're romantically interested in if all they associate with that is the pain, the pain of anxiety, the pain of remembering, remembering your brilliant pickup line. <laughs> Crap, I forgot it. <laughs> the irony is, if you approach somebody and say, you know what, I had the perfect line in order to approach you with right now, but I have completely forgotten it and I'm feeling like a loser. That's a better pickup line than whatever lame thing you had going on because it's based in authenticity and it's based in kind of this, okay, we're gonna have a reciprocal interaction, et cetera, et cetera. But again, we're talking about meaning and we're talking about um, moving toward, moving away. Like it's all kind of the same right. stuff on each end of the spectrum. Because the other thing that I was thinking when you were talking was like about setting goals, like, and you were talking about like being president in 2020, like and people talk about yeah. all the time, like, you should have these specific goals and you should write down that you want to be the, that's like, that example is like something that people say is a good idea. And I, yeah. in some ways, like for singers, like I think positive thinking is, is great. And, but I guess there's, sure. I guess there's like a difference between letting your imagination, like see a positive thing, but then mm -hmm. I guess separating the belief and, and the, like that you can have a goal, but then maybe separate why you have it. And I don't know. I, but I, also I think, sorry, no. but also like I, I, I'm with you because I think sometimes I struggle with goal setting because like I'm aware of that lack of control. Like I can set a goal, like I say like, hey, in three years, I would really like to be in a spot where I have management, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so I can break it down into actionable steps of like how I can, you know, get myself to a place, da, 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 da. but like ultimately a lot of that stuff is out of my control. Mm -hmm. I can practice till the, the cows come home and if the right people at the right time don't see me or they don't like my voice, yeah. like I could set that goal for three years from now and it might never happen. Right. I, I struggle with, just this is just kind of an aside, I, I struggle with the idea like whenever a performer is like, oh man, I, I either I didn't do well on that audition or they didn't like my voice. Like my brain is always going like, who doesn't like your voice for crying out loud? I've heard you perform. Who doesn't <laughs> like your voice? Just saying. That's true. Um, <laughs> yes. So I'm going to blow your mind. You get, you ready? Shit, yeah. To have your minds blown. Wow. I was, at least it's getting edgy here. Yeah, shit. Lay it on. <laughs> when we come to goal setting, okay, we have to remember that we chase down feelings. We don't chase down stuff. The only reason why we have any goals, and I'm talking big picture, even down to like the little daily things, even down to the tasks right now. We, all three of us, have goals for this podcast, right? The only reason we set goals at all is because we think achieving those goals will facilitate certain feeling states, okay? So for example, like the, the easiest possible example of this is somebody who sets a goal to, to, I wanna be rich. And they're like, okay, 
I, 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 this is my specific, I'm gonna have X million of dollars, like whatever it happens to be. But when you get down to it, why did that person set that goal of being rich? They, they, you know, they, they don't want like what? They, they want a lot of little green pieces of paper with, with presidents on them, probably not. What they want are the feelings that they think they're gonna feel when they look at their bank account, they see a certain balance. They think they're gonna feel a certain kind of way. They think they're going to feel secure. They think they're going to feel accomplished, whatever it happens to be. They might like thinking about when they have a certain bank balance, the things that they can then do. I can then buy a boat. Why is that everybody's first thing? I'm gonna buy a boat. <laughs> so, so keep this in mind. Yeah. The only reason that we pursue goals at all is because we think achieving those goals will facilitate certain feeling states. Now, when we get into the specific goals, and this kind of speaks to, to the question of like, all right, so how specific should I be with these goals and how obsessive should I be? When it comes to obsessive, I'm Mr. Obsessive. Like I'm all about like, hell yes, write it all down. And by the way, be expansive. Like I'm very big on like, boy, when you're setting goals, you want something that really fires you up. Because what's the point of setting goals if they don't really turn you on and draw you toward them, right? Right. So I would be all about, I'm not only going to be elected president in 2020, I'm going to be the best president. <laughs> and I'm going to have an amazing inaugural address. People will be crying. Tears of joy. Why did I have that goal? Not necessarily because I wanted the job of president. It was actually kind of a turning point in my life when I kind of really realized what the president does. It's a nightmare. It's a night. I can't even conceive. I can't conceive of being like a member of Congress. <laughs> but why did I want to be president? I wanted to be president because I thought it would make me feel loved by my father. So when we talk about goals that you have, like goals of I want this kind of family, you know, this kind of relationship, I want this kind of career, et cetera, et cetera, back up and ask yourself, all right, What's my real goal? What feelings am I chasing? Mm -hmm. you know, I'm chasing feelings of I want to feel secure, accomplished, it's, you know, whatever it happens to be. Then, I will, I, I'll even give you a very specific example. See, I'm giving, I'm giving away secrets here that normally people have to pay. So <laughs> you guys, this is how charming you guys are. <laughs> so, so an exercise that, that I give most of my people is... Um, when you wake up in the morning, the very first bit of journal journaling you do is ask yourself the question, what do I want? Big picture. And the idea is to spend three to five minutes and don't censor yourself. Just write down whatever comes to mind. It doesn't really matter if the answer makes sense. It doesn't matter if the answer is literally true, et cetera, et cetera. What do I want? And then you ask yourself the question, what can I do in these 24 hours that can nudge me toward those feeling states, right? So it's not necessarily what can I do that will, like if my goal is, you know, like what do I want? I wanna be president. What can I do in the next 24 hours to nudge me toward that feeling state? We're not talking about what can get me closer to being elected president, but we're nudging toward, okay, having acknowledged that feeling state, I want to feel loved. And what's behind that? I want to feel competent. I want to feel, you know, I personally associate the feeling of being loved with the feeling of contribution. Right? want those feelings. What can I do in the next 24 hours that can maybe facilitate those feelings? 
So what this does is day by day, it has us asking that super important question first thing. What feeling states am I really after? What's this all about? Because I'll tell you, something that really messes people up is, and we kind of hit on this a little earlier, but you know, man, they've been chasing the goal for so long and maybe the goal no longer represents what it once did to them, but now they're just in it. (laughs) And then they achieve their goal and they're miserable because they didn't pay attention to the fact of like, look, you were never actually chasing the goal. You were chasing the feeling state and that's where you lost track. Yeah, we talk about that sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's the the thing, like I honestly believe, like people ask, what's the purpose of life? And that's really kind of a more philosophy thing. Like I don't fancy myself a philosopher, but if I was a philosopher, I might ask, what's it all about? You know, what's the meaning of life? I happen to think the meaning of life is to create um, successively rewarding, pleasurable, meaningful experiences. It's to feel good. Like I, I am a hedonist in that way, in that I think there's value to feeling good. And by the by, I don't think that contradicts you know some of these great systems of moral philosophy that we have, because you know I don't think that the only way to feel good is is by doing terrible things. Some people do, <laughs> <laughs> right? They really do. But I do. <laughs> so I believe life is all about creating reinforcement, creating fun, pleasurable experiences. Life is about feeling good. It really, really is. Now, what's the most efficient, effective path to feeling good? It is to wake up every day, get a fix on, those, on, on what we associate with feeling good. What we associate. So when you're asking yourself that question, what do I want? Well, I want this. I want this because I think it's going to help me feel this, this, and this. We get a flavor for what we think creates what my old philosophy teacher used to call the good life. And then every single day, we orient our day toward like with those 24-hour, um, like when you ask yourself the question, what can I do in the next 24 hours? Mm-hmm. Can you nudge me toward this feeling state. That means you've chosen things that you can do today. Now imagine what life would be like if you made feeling good that kind of practical, actionable priority. Like a lot of times when people come in for therapy and we have this conversation, I'm like, look, I, you know, we're all about equipping you to create and feel pleasurable, affirming, reinforcing states. What would that feel like? And I get a little tear because they're like, can't imagine what that would make you feel like, what that would feel like. Because we've been sold this bill of goods, right? Like we've been sold, in order to have a meaningful life, again, this is very Catholic thing, in order to have a meaningful life, it's all about suffering, it's all about sacrifice. Life is pain, princess, and anyone who tries to tell you different is trying to sell you something. something. What's that from again? What? Elise didn't just ask that. I remember that, that quote, but I don't remember where it's from. I didn't give the British accent its, it's proper deal. <laughs> Unlike some Robin Hoods, I can see. Inconceivable. Awesome. Uh. Oh, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you. I feel like I have thrown so much verbiage. This will be an episode to like re-listen to. (laughs) But again, it always comes back to me. Like it always comes back to what am I, what's the meaning I'm associating with this as opposed to reacting to what life throws at us. Mm, That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you for talking with us. That's great. 
That's our episode. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Doyle's work, you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Glenn Doyle. That's Glenn with two N's. Or read his self-help blog at www.useyourdamnskills.com. Let us know what you thought of this week's episode on social media at My So-Called Opera Life, or send us an email at info at mysocalledoperalife.com. We love to hear from you. Finally, many thanks to our season two sponsor, the Sparkle Twins. If you're looking for a mouth mask these days so you can leave your house to stock up on coffee, or let's be serious, some wine, support these artists in the process by ordering one of their mouth masks made especially with singers and performers in mind. To order yours, visit www.sopranotwins.com forward slash shop. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep on singing. Bye.